0: Isn't it nice to be able to just turn on a switch and say you're on, you know? <laughs> well, I wish I had one of those when I'm at home and trying to roll out early in the morning. My wife, Pandora, just stand, babe, so at least. See, she loves me to recognize her, yeah. <laughs> Is with me this today. And uh, the last time I spoke here, she was not able to come. I'll warn you ahead of time. Um, I'm not going to give you the dates, but I will also be here one Sunday in November and one Sunday in December if I'm if I'm needed. And uh, so you'll have to decide if if uh, you want to try to find out those dates and go visit another church, or you know that's that's sort of up to you. So I taught in a seminary for about 20 years, <clears throat> and uh, it was a joke. But some students, what we're not sure that the first day in class I would always say, now the dean of the seminary has a special budget fund for my students. So if any of you need counseling to recover from being in one of my classes, just go by and see the dean. And uh, everybody would laugh. But the dean called me one day and says, I've had somebody show up. So <laughs> I, had to, I had to quit making that offer uh, So I hope that uh, you don't need counseling after our time together today, but uh, I do want you to help me with the message today, Um, and uh, so this is sort of like uh, audience participation time, and uh, so in just a moment, I'm going to turn you loose, but we won't have, but just uh, about a minute, minute and a half, and what I want you to do is get with one other person. It could be, so there's a group of two. Or a group of three and the question that I want you to discuss is this name that you have for this place uh, when you gather renovation I want you to share with the other person what are some of the first thoughts that do come into your mind when you hear renovation what does that mean to you you know it's not I mean it's a word that in certain industries is used But I'm not sure it's part of our church vocabulary or our daily vocabulary for a lot of people. And so uh, the, the purpose of this sermon today is to outline from Scripture what God thinks about renovation. What is God trying to renovate? So let's first talk a little bit about when we hear the word renovation, what kind of thoughts do we have about what that means? So stand, okay? You can stand and find either one other person or two people and uh, share what that thought means, okay? Okay. All right. While you're still standing now, let me let me let you feed back into the group as a whole. Which means you got to speak up very loudly because you don't have a nice microphone like I do. So you're going to have to sort of yell it out, uh, kind of thing. But what were what was a couple of the big ideas that came out? What What's the word? When you think of the word renovation, what do you think of? Tearing down old stuff. Tearing down old stuff. Okay. Change, okay. Renewable. Yeah, renew, another R-E word, yeah. What else? Anything else? We said like ongoing. Ah, ongoing. Yeah, if you've ever done a renovation of a house, you know what that means. It's going to take three times as long and cost twice as much. Yeah, as the plan, you know, kind of thing. Yes, back here on the back. Oh, okay, you were in a group with them. Okay, all right. You were with them too. Okay, anything redeveloping okay all right innovation and innovation. Innovation and ah <clears throat> good good innovation and then re-innovation yeah okay rebuild okay restore new from old okay Yeah, back here, covered them, okay, (coughs) that happens, a makeover, a makeover, okay, anything over here, different, any other thoughts, transformation, okay, Scott, adding on new things, okay, Ah, building on a strong foundation. Good, good. That's actually going to come up in the passage we're looking at today. Okay? Anything else back here? Want to add? Linda's got a smile. There's got to be something that you're thinking, Linda. She's always smiling. Action. Action. Yes. Stephen says you're always smiling. So, that's a nice compliment, by the way. Okay. Well, y'all can be Oh, yes. Okay. Barbara Okay, reconstruction. Good, good. Thank you. It can, be messy. it can be messy. It will be messy. We can guarantee it will be messy. Okay, <clears throat> so renovation is one of those change words and generally means pretty dramatic change. And it usually means tearing some stuff down, letting go of some stuff, which means that anytime we're making that level of change and we're saying goodbye to some things, what does that trigger? It triggers grieving. It triggers a sense of there's a loss here over some things. Now even though there may be some things that we're glad to get rid of, there's still a sense that we're letting go of something that we've known, something that's been there in the past, and now we're no longer going to be using it or leaning on it, or it's not going to be the way we're living going forward. but also it not only means that we're grieving losses as we go through this process of change, but it also means that we have to anticipate and we have to accept the new. We have to accept that change always is challenging us to say, hey, I wonder what God's going to do through this. This is different. And so, renovation has both of those ideas. You're letting go of some things to say goodbye, and you're embracing some things that are coming that are good. Now, how are we going to look at this scripturally today? I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, first chapter, 1 Corinthians. Open your Bible or your phone or whatever, and uh, go to 1 Corinthians. Now, <clears throat> what time are we supposed to end, Stefan? I forget. Two, two, that's not enough time, we're going to have to, I, as the food people back there, they're ready to carry some supplies out as we need them and keep going, okay, all right, all right, I guarantee we'll be done by about four o'clock, because we're going to go through the book of 1 Corinthians, all 16 chapters, so, okay, we're ready, okay, all right, so give me the real time, Stefan. okay all right what are y'all expecting to go home by 11 o'clock 11 15 11 o'clock that sound acceptable can we can we negotiate sign a contract that if I finish talking before 11 o'clock that you'll keep listening until I quit talking okay all right so you're alert you're with me okay good good I am going to do, we're going to read a few verses, but a lot of what I'm going to do this morning is tell you the story of 1 Corinthians. First, you have to go to Acts 18. Don't turn there, I'm just telling the story. In Acts 18, you see how this church got started. It was started in a community, in a city, Corinth, that had a small Jewish community that was very isolated from the larger part of the city. They had their own little neighborhood. Uh, They ate their own foods, they followed their own religion, and that sort of put them in in a special category. Now, persecution against the Jews had already broken out in Rome, and we find out that one of the key couples, Aquila and Priscilla, who were members of the church at Corinth, actually had lived in Rome. And when the persecution started, they fled and ended up in Corinth. Now, the persecution eventually spreads over the whole Roman Empire, and that's what prompts the Roman Empire to actually do war in Palestine and destroy the temple in A.D. 70. Now, why were the Jews being persecuted? Well, they were being persecuted because there were all kinds of religions, mystery religions, uh, Greek gods, Roman gods. They had temples to them. They had temples with with slaves. They had temples with prostitutes. They had temples where people brought fruit and offerings to get blessings for their lives. It was, it was religion everywhere you turned, all kinds of it. But something that had been introduced in the Roman Empire and had grown steadily was emperor worship. It was okay if you worship some of those other gods of your city or around you, but you also needed to include worshiping the emperor. And uh, you had uh, his imprint on the coins, the currency. You had a little idol in your home that stood for the emperor and the Roman Empire. And so, it was, uh, uh, as long as you would add in the worship of the emperor, you were, you were okay. You were considered a good citizen. Well, the Jewish people believed one God. One God, and they would have nothing to do with these other gods. Now, in Corinth, they didn't really mind that they weren't worshiping other pagan gods. They left that up totally to the individual. But it got them in trouble that they were not worshiping the emperor. And so that's what all this persecution was about. Now, into that mix, into that mix, Paul shows up. And Paul, basically, from the point of the culture, from the way he was viewed in Corinth, Paul's coming in and he's introducing a new religion. And he invites the Jewish people who've been in persecution and they've huddled themselves down and they've sort of hidden themselves and isolated themselves. He goes to them and says, Hey, I want you to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, the one who fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. I want you to come to Jesus. And then you're going to come over and join this church, this gathering of believers. And guess what? There's going to be people from the rest of the city. There's going to be what in the New Testament is called Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples. And we're going to form one church, one body of people. So they did. Some of the Jews believed. Many of them rejected Paul and uh, threw him out. And he said, okay, I've got some Jewish converts here, but if, that's, if you don't want me, fine, I'll go to the Gentiles. So the church becomes a majority of Gentiles and a minority of Jews who've embraced Jesus as the Messiah. That's the makeup of the Corinth church. Paul was there for 18 months, helping them get established before he moved on to other places. He writes this letter three years later. After he's left. Okay? And the letter was written because of two things. One, some people had come to Paul from Corinth and given reports of some problems in the church. Can you believe that? That a church could have problems. I mean, you know, I'm just so glad that never happens today. But in those days, you know, they were just getting started with the church and, you know, it just happened. But on top of that, a family with the family named Cleo, which was a man's name, the way it's spelled, and Cleo's family had sent Paul a letter as well. They were leaders in the church in Corinth. The church met in their house, part of it did. They met in multiple homes, but they were one church. And so Cleo's family had written a letter, and in that letter they posed to Paul a bunch of questions that they had collected, not only their own questions, but questions from others in the church that were, again, causing problems in the church. So this letter is primarily the church planter responding to challenges, problems, and questions from a church he had planted three years before. You with me? Okay, so now let's look at the book of 1 Corinthians. And I want, for right now, I want you to skip the first uh, three, four chapters and go over to chapter five. Now, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna turn pages sort of quickly right now because this is just a flyover, okay? When I teach this over to the church planters, I just came back three weeks ago from being in southern France, Egypt, and South Sudan. And I was teaching uh, evangelists in France, and then I taught... Uh, church planters in Egypt and church planters in South Sudan. It was our first time that Pandora and I had been to South Sudan. And uh, we could turn this all into a, about a two hour report on our trip, but we won't do that. But I will say to you that um, what I was trying to do in teaching them over 14 hours, in most cases, 14 hours. Through an interpreter, though, that slows you down a little bit. But teaching 14 hours of a survey of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're only doing 1st Corinthians today because Americans just don't listen that well. But anyway, we would do 14 hours on 1st and 2nd Corinthians with this in mind. I'm training guys to go out in teams of two, plant churches among the least reached people groups in that part of the world who there's zero Christians when they walk in. to a a town, or a small city, or a village. And then they lead people to Christ and plant a church. And so I could have come in and said, okay, here's what all the leadership books in the States talk about principles about how to solve conflicts, and how to solve problems, and how to make changes. But you know what? I'm learning. Our first world church solutions don't work when you're not in the first world. When you go into the third world, they don't work. But Scripture does work. And what I wanted them to see was that Pastor Paul gives great teaching on how to handle almost any problem that comes up in the church. All right, so just see if any of these problems ever show up in the church that you know of anywhere today. If you hear a problem that we still have today in the church that they had in Corinth, you can say amen, okay? Okay. I don't see too many darker faces here. But now in Sudan and in Afri- in uh, Egypt where it's Sudanese and in South Sudan where it's South Sudanese, they know how to say go for it. That's true. Oh, thank you. Okay, so you can feel free to say some of that if you want me to keep going. All right. Chapter 5. What's the problem? The problem is And I won't go into depth and detail here, but the problem is open, blatant sexual immorality. And the church is not doing anything about it. Matter of fact, they're endorsing this relationship that's a very inappropriate sexual relationship. Now, sex is not a problem in the church today. We we have that all figured out. It doesn't cause any problems today. But the big principle that Paul's trying to get across to them is this. I am not telling you to stay away from sexually immoral people in the world. What else can you expect from people who are living in darkness? I want you to run out and embrace sexually immoral people in the world, but within the church, I want you to hold each other to a standard of holiness and to discipline one another. Okay, so that's what he outlines in chapter 5 and goes over into the end of chapter 6. And also he deals with some other issues about marriage, singleness. Evidently there was some teaching going on in the Corinthian church that was confusing people. It's more spiritual if you stay single. Another group, it's more spiritual if you marry. Another group, <clears throat> if you're a widow, uh, you should never remarry. Uh, you know, there was all this confusion. And so Paul deals with about six different questions about Marriage and singleness in chapter 7, but still in that general area of our sexuality. But right after he talks about sex in chapter 5, he deals with something again, we don't have this problem today probably, but he deals with disagreements among believers, Amen. <laughs> especially over money. Ooh. Boy, we Americans, we demand that it be done right, and right's how I see the financial situation. And so they're taking each other to pagan courts to resolve conflicts among believers. And Paul's teaching there is this. You should so treasure and love one another and be in such unity with one another that you would love each other enough that if you can't find an agreement, which you should be able to find by the wise people that God's put in your church, but if you don't really receive their their decision and their reconciliation, then it's better for you just to give up the money and be cheated than to break the unity of the body of Christ. (sighs) Oh, we don't like to preach about that. (laughs) No, not to Americans. No, uh uh-uh. uh. We can't leave justice in the hands of God. We always have to make it right the way we want it to be settled. We can't have a higher value than our rights in this culture. And yet, God says there's all kinds of higher values than just getting our rights. Well, in chapter 8 and 9, he takes a real interesting issue. He takes the issue of eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. Some believers could eat it, no problem. It was discounted at the meat market. They'd go buy it. You know, it's like you know, going to food line looking for the stuff with that green sticker on it or something, buy today, a day. And so they could do that, no problem. Other believers though, who had come out of pagan worship, it caused them to stumble in their faith to eat that meat. Now, I don't think we have the exact same issue But the deeper issue is, is that when there's a situation where the Bible doesn't say yes or no, like on adultery. The Bible's real clear. You're either committing adultery or you're not committing adultery. But when it comes to eating food, God has said, eat. No big deal. I'm the God of all. I've given it to you just eat. But somebody else really struggles with that because of their background. You know what Paul says? For the sake of love, give up your freedom and your rights and don't cause that brother to stumble. Don't offend them. If they have a struggle with it, then you just lay it down and say, Brother, you're free to not eat it and I'm free to join you in not eating it today. If you're off by yourself and that brother's not around, Paul says, if you want to eat, go ahead and eat. If you're in the home of a pagan and they offer you that, <clears throat> go ahead and eat it. Okay? So again, Paul says, there's a higher value than me just demanding my rights and my freedom. There's this higher standard of love. Well, what else does Paul talk about in this book? Well, I'm going to jump over And a little bit and just jump on a big one here. Chapters 12 through 14. There's a couple other smaller problems in there. You can dig those out. I'm just introducing you and flying over and and you do want to get done and uh, and go have some lunch later. I'd like to too. Chapter 12 through 14. You know what he's dealing with? Spiritual Spiritual gifts. And you know what the problem is? People are strutting around like peacocks. Look at my gift. Man, I've got a gift. Holy Spirit really loves me. God really loves me. He didn't give you that gift, Evelyn. He gave it to me, and I'm just sorry for you, girl. You know, you know, but I've got the gift. And so Paul strongly rebukes them and says, Don't you understand? The Holy Spirit doesn't give you all gifts. He spreads them out through the body because the diversity means everybody's got something to offer and give and the diversity and the offering of what God's given you is to be an act of loving and serving one another. The gift is not for you. The gift is for the body. And you're just the mailman delivering God's mail. Now, if you're at home and the mailman comes and sticks the mail in the mailbox and you walk out there and you open the door and there's a letter from a lawyer about some uncle that you've never remembered and he's left you $100,000. Well, you don't hug the mailman and thank him for the gift of $100,000. He just delivered it. It's not about him. You go, you go get on the phone real quick and find out about that uncle. Right? That's the way Paul says we're to view spiritual gifts. Again, for love is the highest motive. Chapter 15, they're in a big theological debate. It shakes the whole roots of the gospel. And the big theological debate is this. Is there a resurrection from the dead? He spends a whole chapter answering that question. Bottom line, he says, well... If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus didn't raise from the dead. If there's no resurrection from the dead, we of all people, our faith is useless. We're a bunch of clowns. He uses that word equivalent in the Greek language. We're just a bunch of nutcases walking around talking about the fact that we're going to die, but we're going to get raised and have a new body. And so he really takes apart that argument, trying to bring them back to the basics of the gospel and understanding We've got to stay focused on Jesus and and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that enables us then to not only get to truth, but also to love as Jesus loved. Because behind the resurrection is God saying, I love you so much that physical death is not going to separate us. I love you so much and Jesus died for you and forgave you so that we can be together forever. Okay? So what's the what is the defining motive and driving force again in this problem? Love. Do you really embrace the love of God and are you letting that feed your hope and your ability to love others? Begin to see a pattern here? Now, let's talk for a little minute about how then I've surveyed the whole book of 1 Corinthians. We finished okay? There's a little bit in chapter 16, but we'll, again, that's sort of a smaller thing. There's some good stuff there, but if I had 14 hours, we'd unpack the whole book. But for today, that'll be enough. You've got the idea, I think. What's amazing to me is how Paul responds to these people. Now, if I was a church planter, I've worked with people for 18 months, I've trained leaders, I've appointed those leaders to leave the church, and then Around three years later, this church is a mess. They have got fighting and problems on every front. From theological issues to non-theological issues, just disagreeing over, do you homeschool? Do you public school? Do you Christian school? But with them, it's like, do you eat this food or that food? But it's those kinds of divisions that's just tearing the church apart. I think I would go and get a big stick maybe even a baseball bat. And I'd want to go to Corinth and just say, brother, I need to bless you. Just like, wake up, stupid people. That would be my response. Maybe that's why, you know, God's not let me plant very many churches. But I want you to see how Paul speaks to them. Look in chapter 1 again. All the way back, chapter 1. Because Paul follows a basic biblical principle that Jesus models, and it's to be your basic principle for how you do life as a Christian. And that is this. You're to live your whole life, Jason, with a tension in your life. I'm picking on Jason because he said amen twice this morning. So I know he's with me. He's a fan, okay? So, Jason, there's a tension in Scripture that keeps coming up probably 30, 40, 50 times in the New Testament. Easy. And that is, we always approach another person full of grace and full of truth. We don't compromise either one. But you see, we tend to lay one of those down. And we either become this grace-filled, mushy person who just says, oh, Jesus just loves you. It don't matter what you do or what you say. Jesus just loves you, and I'm never going to say anything to you about it. It's just wonderful. That's all grace, but there's no truth in it. That's loving your child by never caring enough about the child to discipline the child. And then also, though, I can come... And us Christians, man, we are famous for this. I mean, we've got blogs all over the Internet. We publish books. We circulate stuff that's not true and half quoted out of context. But we come in and we take truth and we turn it into a hammer. And we just wham, wham. Believe like I believe or you're not in the kingdom. And we basically treat one another that way. But not Jesus and not His followers. In the New Testament it was, I've got to always wrestle and come full of grace, full of truth. And hold both of those in tension. Again, I won't have time to go through all the passages, but I counted about 15 passages in First and 2 Corinthians where what I'm going to read you is done over and over and over. Paul comes full of grace. Chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he says, I'm addressing the church at Corinth but I know this letter is going to be circulated and I'm really writing to all believers. Real smart. You take one church, handle their problems very specifically like case studies and it can help all the other churches. Smart. He says then in verse 3, Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice how he begins verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. And he goes on. Paul says, "When I think of you guys, I don't see you as just a mess as a church. I don't see you as just all your problems. You have some problems, and you have some messes, but I, that's not the all that I see of you. In this book, he calls them brothers and sisters. He calls them children. He calls them in one place, it's almost funny, in 2 Corinthians, where he says, you are my letter of reference to endorse my ministry. You, as your people. You people. I don't need written letters of references because I just say, go look at Corinth. Now, again, that would probably not be my poster child that I would hold up and say, i got to write a book on leadership and all God's done. Look at my great church over here at Corinth. But that's the way Paul talked about them. He saw their potential in Christ. He saw the work of God working its way into them. Even the fact that they were asking these questions and that they were stirred up about them, he says, that's a good thing. That means you've got some spiritual eyes and you're wrestling. And wrestling can lead to growth if we anchor it in truth. So Paul comes, and he constantly does this as he goes through. When he gets ready to talk about their problems, he'll say, Dear children, dear brothers and sisters, those I deeply love. Bam! (laughs) Now, we got to deal with this. Okay? Now, look at verse 10. Because here he talks about the big problem that connects to all these other problems. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 1, I appeal to you brothers... See again, he's using that brotherly language. And he's using actually in the Greek a generic term for male and female here. The NIV and a few other translations picked that up. Uh, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Cleo's people, okay, so he's been getting these reports and letters, that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is, each of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, well, I follow Cephas, who was Peter. He was the Jewish leader in the church of Jerusalem. This is is the Peter that we read all about in the Gospels. (coughs) But then there's a real spiritual group in the church, I follow Christ. Yeah, right. Uh, And then he says in verse 13 is Christ divided? We're the body of Christ. We're not Paul, Apollos, Peter. We're not a whole series of cliques and clubs. We are one body. We're not reformed, charismatic, whatever labels. We are one in Christ. Well, we'll think about that. You see, that was their root problem. It impacts everything else in the church. The fact that they are in disunity and divided against one another positions them to say, we don't know how to settle this sexual issue. We don't know how to settle these financial conflicts. We don't know how to use our spiritual gifts. We don't know how to handle this food thing. Everything else becomes big issue because underneath it is this a lack of a commitment to unity, and they've become very divisive and self-focused. So go over to chapter 3. Because there he really nails the problem. You see, he says, there's a deeper problem, even than the disunity. I can look at you, he says, and see that you're divided. And I'm getting these reports about it. <clears throat> but he says, there's actually a deeper issue that's feeding the divisions. What's the deeper issue? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people. Now think about this. Think about the guy who led you to Christ sitting down with you and saying what he's getting ready to say, okay? Okay? Just think about that, how you would feel. Okay, dear brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, three years ago, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human ways. In other words, he says, you're a Christian. You've been born again. You laid down your life and said, Jesus, I belong to you. You're now indwelt by the Spirit of God. All these other believers have done the same thing. But instead of focusing on your unity in Christ, he says, you're acting just like non-Christians. That's the accusation. When he says... You're acting like the world or you're acting of the flesh. What he's really saying is you're acting just like people who aren't even born again. Now again, how would, how, would you, how would you respond if somebody nailed your shoes to the floor that way? So here is the big question of the morning. The big question of the morning is, Paul says the root issue in this church is spiritual immaturity, which then leads to division and disunity which then leads to all of these problems and challenges being much bigger and more complicated and more divisive. You see, any church that mixes all these kind of different ethnic groups and peoples and people with different backgrounds, there's going to be questions and struggles. But you see, if you're handling those from a body of being mature in Christ and you're handling them in a spirit of unity... Where it's not us and them, but it's we have a problem, not us and them and you're the problem, but we stand together and we have a problem that we need to work on together. So Paul says that's the root, that's the bad root of this system. The bad root is spiritual immaturity. Renovation implies that you're moving people from immaturity to maturity. And that's going to mean them letting go of some things and embracing some things, some new things. And that's exactly what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians. He says you've got to let go. You've got to repent and turn away from your selfishness. You've got to turn away from demanding your own way and demanding your own rights. And you've got to keep Jesus as the center focus, which he talks about in chapters 2 through 4. And in chapters 15, he revisits this whole idea of being Jesus-centered and not self-centered. This is what I think we should be doing. It's almost like, who cares what you or me think that the church should be? The real issue is, what's God doing? And what does He want the church to be? And I'm willing to lay down my discomfort, my preferences, I'm willing to grieve those and embrace the change and the new thing that God's doing. Now what does maturity look like? We know now what immaturity looks like. Immaturity produces a self-centered saint who's more interested in bragging about their gifts than they are in investing them in the body, and on and on and on. So we know what immaturity looks like, a very selfish infant life. Because you know what? That little five-month-old baby back there, are you the father? Okay, so your wife finally gets to go take a shower, and the baby's hungry, starts getting hungry all of a sudden, and crying. So here's what you do, right? You go, and you get the little baby, and you hold the little baby, and you say, Honey, it's going to be okay. Is it a boy or a girl? Oh, hey, man, you're going to be Okay. Mama's just getting cleaned up a little bit. But you know, we have fed you every time you're hungry for the last five months. We're going to keep feeding you. Just chill, man, chill. And then the little baby goes, yes, dad, no problem, right? No, no, no. The infant instead is crying. I'm starving and you guys don't care a lick. You're just letting me starve. and mom's run away and this old guy's there, I don't, I don't like this. This is not what I signed up for. Go get me a family that cares about me. <coughs> That's the spiritual infant. So what's maturity? Turning your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 13. I'm starting into my conclusion, but it's, it may take me about five minutes to get so I've violated my covenant with you. so you can stop listening in two minutes and I'll start talking in about five minutes, okay? but I, got, I have to finish a message. It's sort of, it's something in me that I just cannot not finish the message. So um, you can ask somebody around you who was still listening what, what these last five minutes are. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. How do we use this passage? Oh, we put it on Valentine's cards and we have little plaques for it and we talk a lot about, a lot of the times when I've heard it preached on, it's about marriage you know, it's about, you know, love. Paul says, oh, this is love. Love is patient, verse 4. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It, notice what he says in verse 5. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable, resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. So again, it's bringing in that grace and truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. Paul says, Maturity, spiritual maturity, is that you love like this. And not just with your wife or your children or your mother. Think of all those problems he's outlined in the book of 1 Corinthians. All the division, vision. All of the demanding their rights and demanding it their way. And those are exactly in that definition. He mentions them back when he deals with each problem, but here he pulls them all together in one paragraph. And says, guys, this is spiritual maturity. Look at the last verse. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. So, what are you going to aim at? I know y'all are, you know, wanting to get a pastor and you're wanting to get sort of organized and you're wanting to get, you know, fresh direction and going. I understand all that. But what are you, what's God saying to you between now and October of 2020, if you're still kicking up dust and breathing? What does God want to do in you the next 12 months? What renovation work is God wanting to accomplish in you? How do you want to move some of the immaturity out of your life and move some of the maturity up in your life and grow up out of spiritual infancy? Faith. Faith is always surrendering to God's will And just stepping out. Do what God says is next. It's just saying to God, God, here I am. I'm available. I absolutely trust you 100%. And whatever you show me the next step to take, I'll take it. Okay? So it's a walk of faith. But not only that, spiritual maturity is also hope. And hope may be the most visible part of spiritual maturity in some ways because it means I reject comfort and I endure the challenge. It means not giving up. It means keeping focus. It means rejecting selfishness and to keep on moving towards people even if they disappoint me. Jesus modeled that with Peter. Peter denied Him three times. Jesus gets with him after the cross and says, Peter, you're still the man and I want you to lead you still got the blessing on you, brother. You've got the calling on you. Jesus came to him with grace and truth. He faced the, his weak, stumbling, infantile spiritual heart, and Peter started growing in hope, in endurance. And he died a life after being persecuted deeply for the gospel. And then finally, love. Love is giving Generously let me put it this way whatever God has given you whatever God has given you he wants you to give it away to others Uh, I won't make Pandora come up and tell her story but I will tell you this she taught special education for over 36 years in the public school last 20 plus years she was focused on preschool autism And she's considered a specialist in that field and has trained other teachers and done other things. She retired. We're now going overseas. Crazy, crazy story. But we're going overseas to places like Egypt and South Sudan. What does she do? Well, God puts her in a room full of Muslims, 70 or 80 of them many times. And she does a workshop on autism that they're desperate to get help with. See, all you're doing is taking whatever God's given you and then sewing it into others. I'll close with two stories. One I just heard this morning from Pandora. There's a young lady that we got to know in our church in Columbia. We lived in Columbia, South Carolina, where I taught in the seminary at Columbia International University for over 20 years. Her name is Natalie Flickner. Her husband, Kevin, is a real quiet kind of guy, works in the library at Columbia International. And I used to send anything I needed help with for the library Um, I'd call Kevin. I'd say, Kevin, I need five journal articles, and I need this, and I did that. Could you help me find them? Sure, no problem. I had a doctoral student, and he's struggling with research for his dissertation. I'd say, go over to the library, look for a guy named Kevin, buy him a cup of coffee, and he'll solve your problem. Even if you can't buy him coffee, you may solve your problem. Natalie has cerebral palsy, and she walks kind of funny, and sometimes you have to listen close, she felt God was calling her to be a missionary. And so she just got back from Kenya doing workshops for doctors and medical personnel in Kenya about how there can be a spiritual ministry in working with people with disabilities. (laughs) I would walk by that girl at church and think, well... She can't even be on the greeting team because she can't hold the bulletins good. And she's going to Kenya. And God's using her. We're too quick to think, oh, I'm so weak and I don't have much and I don't have this. I'm not asking you what you don't have. I'm saying whatever God has given you, you're going to answer for that. So whatever God's given you, He says freely you have received, freely give. While I was, I'll close with this one. <clears throat> you can't read this, I'm sure. But I'll show it to Jason because he's been nice to me. <clears throat> okay. It's written in good English, isn't it? Yes. You know who wrote that? A man named Samuel, who was one of my students in Juba, South Sudan, 43 years old. Five children. He says when he has his next one, it's going to be a little girl. He's already told us, he's told his wife, we're going to have a little girl because we only have one girl. We want another girl. We're going to name her Pandora. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Samuel did not finish sixth grade because of the wars. He was pulled out of school, handed a gun, and saying, Go fight the Sudanese Arabs did that for a while, then managed to turn in his gun and went back to his home tribe, the Dinkas, and the portion of the tribe he was in was on the border of Uganda. At that time, it was illegal for missionaries to come into Sudan because of the Muslim rule. These missionaries, Baptist missionaries, would go into Uganda and go right up to the border of South Sudan, and they had started a Bible school. They would sneak across the border and teach well, Samuel found out that they were doing that, so he picked up another four or five courses and started learning English from those missionaries over the couple of years or so that they were able to do that before that got shut down. <clears throat> now he's in our year long, lives there for a whole year on our campus in Juba, wanting to sharpen his skills as a church planter. Now, This church up here that's named the Lighthouse Evangelical Church of South Sudan is the mother church. And about five years ago, not long after he finished those few courses, just three or four courses with those Baptist missionaries, God put it on his heart to plant a church. Sixth grade education, struggling with English. Church is now running 500 people. Not only that, but what these words in pink are is that in ten other villages, excuse me, nine other villages around that city, he's planted churches. These are every church he's planted in the last five years. And the two names under them are the leaders he's trained to lead those churches. And they range from about 100 people down to about 20 people. Now we had this all verified by some of our staff. They flew out to that area when we first heard about him. And so... The people who run the school that I taught at, <clears throat> they said to Samuel when they were there with him, Samuel, can you find somebody to lead the mother church and you and five of your leaders come and study at the church planting school for a year? Because we can learn from you and we want to help you learn more. I tell you, I was there teaching for a week through First and Second Corinthians. I walk in to teach... He's got like three Bibles open on, this, on the table and a commentary, all in English. Well, we had, did have an Arabic Bible, Arabic Bible, a couple of English Bibles, and a commentary. And he is interacting with me every five minutes I'm teaching. He's like, Dr. King, Dr. King. And they were great questions. I mean, half the time I'm going, Lord, please <laughs> bring in somebody who can answer that question. I'd say, Samuel, that's a wonderful question. Can we talk about that tomorrow? (laughs) Because I need to go back to my room and pray and think about this before I say anything. Okay. When he planted these churches five years ago, their country was South Sudan, was in a vicious civil war, tribal civil war that didn't end until the fall of 2018. And it's very fragile and it's in danger right now of breaking out again into civil war. It's very, very fragile. We saw walls where the machine guns had just dug big chunks out of the wall, less than two miles from where we were teaching. Now, I think, if you, if, I think you've got a little more in your game than Samuel has. You've got a little more in your suitcase. You've had more opportunities than maybe you thought you've had. Have you abandoned them to God? Is everything you've got on the table for God? And you're saying, God, it's going to be fun between now and October 2020 for you to lead me into some adventures of faith, hope, and love where I can give what you've given to me. It's going to be scary. I'm going to feel way too weak, but I'll be there. When you leave this morning... Pandora and I put our business card out here, our booklet about our ministry in Africa, in North Africa and Egypt. Please take one of those. Uh, they were printed in May, and if I don't get rid of them, uh, they won't be, they'll be outdated, you know, by January or February. So take one, learn about what we're doing. There's actually an envelope there. So if you'd like to help the girls in the orphanage buy a van. Their van died just last week. We were riding in that van three weeks ago, and I told Pandora when we got out, I whispered to her, I said, This van's on its last leg. Because, see, my dad was a car mechanic. I grew up laying under cars. That van was, it died 15 times trying to get us about three miles from the Nile, which they wanted us to see before we left, from the Nile back to the orphanage. It died 15 times. Now it's completely dead. They need, in another week, we need $20,000 to buy a new van. Because they have to go to three different schools. The three and four year olds and stuff go to, preschool then there's a primary school and a secondary school and right now they're having to pay a driver and a van for that and that takes them food out money out of their budget to buy vegetables and fruit so if you do want to give to that there's an envelope out there for that Um, I know you've got needs here I know you've got needs here you need to be faithful in your giving here but what what Pandora and I are realizing is we're rich we really are Pandora and I are wealthy compared to people right now that, friends of ours, where it takes 300 Sudanese pounds to equal $1. And eight years ago, it was three. Three Sudanese pounds to $1. So, friends, we, don't, we, we, can't, we just can't see how God could do more. Here's the bottom line question. Do you want to move towards maturity? Do you want to move toward renovation? Move. Let God renovate you in the next 12 months by growing your faith, growing your hope, and growing your love. When I come back in a month, that's going to be the title of the sermon. How do we grow faith, hope, and love? Okay? Thank you.